Well, howdy, y'all. I did spend the past five years in Dallas, Texas, and that's how we greet the church down there. We say, howdy, y'all. So we try that with me. On the count of three, we're going to give a big howdy, y'all. One, two, three. Howdy, y'all. Oh, now you're getting I feel right at home. This is good people here. This is good people here. Dallas Seminary was such a blessing for my family and I in the last five years, and we have some friends of the seminary that are families that give gifts to the seminary uh, for the students to use so we can take a break from our studies. So we get like Dallas Mavericks tickets and Dallas Cowboys tickets and, you know, even the Dallas Symphony Orchestra is something. So we've been blessed to be a part of that and, and go on some of that. But I'll tell you my favorite thing that's in the ticket pool at Dallas Seminary. My favorite thing, I, I just I go by there daily and I just look to see if they're in there, are tickets to the Mesquite Championship Rodeo. I'm telling you, the O'Briens love us some rodeo. It is so much fun. And, uh, you know, the rodeo is a crazy place. And if you can get to the rodeo early enough and your children are under 70 pounds and you're not a sheltering kind of parent, you can sign them up to do mutton busting. So here's how this works. They take your child behind the gates. You know, the fan area is one area. The child goes to, like, the rodeo area where the cattle is and the rodeo performers are. And then they strap a bulletproof vest to your kid. And then they put a hockey helmet on him with a big metal face mask They take your child and they put them on the back of a sheep. They tell your child to hold the wool as tight as they can, and the one that holds on the longest is the winner. And they put the sheep in in, in the, the gate chute out to the arena, and they open the door and off goes your kid on the back of a sheep. Oh, it's awesome. You'd love it. You'd love it. And so the, you know, the first, I remember I've, several of my children have done it. Logan's got a few trophies. Caitlin's even got a trophy. And I remember the first time I picked Logan up, uh, they parade the parents out to the arena to pick your kid out of the dirt and horse poop that's there. I remember the first time I picked Logan up, he's just grinning ear to ear. And what do you think he said to me? Yeah, can I do it again? You know, I think why we love the rodeo so much, why it's so cool, is at the rodeo, you're not merely a spectator. You're not merely watching what's going on. You get to participate in the action. That's what's so cool about it. You become not only a spectator, you get to be part of the unfolding story of the evening. And that's why we love the rodeo, it's, it's a good time. You, you would love it. If you ever get down to Dallas, please do yourself a favor and go to the rodeo. You'd love it. As part of our time at Dallas Seminary, Krista and I, my wife and I, also spent 21 days in Israel. And we got to be part of a study trip in Israel. And I'm telling you that this study trip changed my life. And it was really because when we were walking the Bible places, when we were at the Bible events, when we were uh, digging in the ground at Jericho, we no longer were mere spectators of the Bible. We were now participants in the unfolding story. 
And today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that story. I'm going to try my best, but I need your help to have us participate in the story. A very familiar story that we know and we've read many times, but I want us to participate in it. I want you, get this, this morning, not just to be a spectator of the Bible, not just to be a reader of the Bible, but I want you to see the Bible in HD this morning. Can we do that together? I hope we can. I'll, I'll do my best to do that. That's my goal. That's where we're going. As part of our trip, I got to spend a day at the archaeological excavation at a place called Kirbet el Makater. There's my family. There's actually Krista and I in Hezekiah's tunnel in Israel. That's a lot of fun. You get to get wet. That's like the Israeli water ride walking through a tunnel. But it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I spent a day out at Kirbet el Makater, which we think is the biblical site of Ai. There's a traditional site. It's west of the site of Kirbet el Makater. And we think we're about to rewrite the history books. We think all the maps in the back of your Bible are wrong. And Ai of Joshua chapter 8 is in a different location. And as we were digging, we were opening up a new square and literally sticking my spade in, we found broken pottery. Broken pottery from the 1400s B.C. You thought some of those cars next weekend were old, right? I mean, this stuff's from 1400 B.C. And I'm picking it up and it's in my hand. The Bible no longer becomes a spectator sport. I was participating. I held the history in my hand. And this morning I want to tell you that the Bible is a book about real places real people and real geography and history that actually happened. In fact, Pastor Matt allowed me to set some of my stuff up on the table in the back. If you get a chance, go back and, and, and look. You can pick up the pottery. You can look at the mosaic tiles. My son's brought his shofar this morning that he's going to do something for us. I'd encourage you to do that. Don't worry, you can't break the pottery. It's already broken. So don't worry. But it is from 1400 B.C. And I'd love you to see that. It was an incredible experience. It really was. So, I need you to get out your metaphorical spades this morning, because we're going to go digging, and we're going to go digging. But before we do that, I want to ask you a couple of foundational questions. These are what we call penetrating questions, and my hope is that these questions will put our mindset in the correct spot this morning as we venture to participate in the story of the Bible together. And the first question is this. Have you ever seen maybe a television program on Discovery or History or PBS or something, or read some literature, or through something a friend said, have you ever doubted the claims of the Bible? Now, now be honest here. I mean, this is nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, we all have our doubts, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with doubting. I'm just wondering, I don't want you to just say no. I want you to really think, have you ever doubted the claims of the Bible? Because maybe they said, you know, it's just a myth. It's just a story. And maybe, I think even as Christians, sometimes as we're reading the Scripture, sometimes our minds can go there too. These are good moral tales. These are good stories. You know, if you're here this morning and you're a little bit new in your faith, I would encourage you, one of the best things you can do 
to grow up in the faith is to read your Bible. You know, maybe you don't have a good Bible reading plan. I'd encourage you to get one. I encourage you to to read it daily, to get in there and wallow around a little bit, as we say in Texas, and learn what the claims of the Bible are. You know, maybe you're a little bit older in the faith and and quite honestly, you used to read the Bible and it used to benefit you on a daily basis, but you just haven't, you kind of got out of the habit. Well, my goal with us participating in this story is not to put you on some guilt trip, ah, bad Christian, you don't read your Bible. But I'm hoping to renew, kind of ignite the fire again for reading the Scriptures, for getting in there, for figuring out what the Lord's telling us through His Word. That's my goal. So it's not a guilt trip, it's a goal for this morning, and we're going to go after it. I'm going to, I'm not a very good musician, I can't do it, Pastor Matt doesn't get up here and sing, but I'm going to begin a jingle. I'm going to start to sing, to show you where we're going in the text this morning. And when it's your turn, I want you to join in and finish the jingle, okay? So here we go, ready? <coughs> Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and oh, you guys are awesome. You've served in children's ministry before. I know it. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, this morning's text is Joshua chapter 6, and I actually need three volunteers that are good public readers that would be willing to help me out. Look, you're not going to be more embarrassed than the new guy getting up here, but I just need you to get up here if you're a good public reader. I just want you to raise your hand. I'm going to call you out. I need you to help me out. Will you please help the new guy this morning if you're a good public reader? Just throw that hand up in the air if you're willing to help me out, please, and you're not afraid to get up here. Um, okay, great. Thank you, sir. We got one. We just need Now the ice is broken. We just need two more. Just two more. Thank you, sir. That's two. We got two. We just need that final brave soul that final brave soul look my kids went mutton bust and you can read some scripture okay who is it who's the one <laughs> i just need one more give this to you i'm going to give this to you pastor gets the prostitute text there you go <laughs> okay so here's what we're going to do i'm also going to ask my son logan to join us on the stage now again we want to participate in the story of joshua chapter six we don't just want to kind of mull over what's going on here. We want to participate. So we're going to read, and then we're going to do some participatory stuff. So I'm going to stop you midway, but just go ahead, step forward to the mic, and uh, begin reading Joshua chapter 6. The Conquest of Jericho. Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites, no one leaving or entering. The Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've handed Jericho its king and its fighting men over to you. March around the city with all the men of war circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. So on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the people give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the people will advance, each man straight ahead. I'm going to stop you there. Okay, now, again, we want to participate in this story. And, yeah, we're going to read the whole chapter here. So, But we want to get into this now. So what I'm going to do is Logan's got a ram's horn. This is a shofar that we got in Israel. For some reason, these things are incredibly hard to make any sound out at all. But this boy's got the gift. So he's going to give a big blow on his horn. 
and then we're all going to shout because we want to get into this. And hopefully the structural integrity of this building won't fail us. Um, but we're going to try this, okay? Logan, so why don't you give us a big old blow and we'll shout. Ah! Okay, great. You can continue reading. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of the Ark of the Lord. He said to the people, Move forward, march around the city, and have the armed troops go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. After Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord moved forward and blew the trumpets. The Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed troops were in front of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard went behind the ark. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not shout or let your voice be heard. Don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time I say, Shout. Then you are to shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once. They returned to camp and spent the night there. So thank you very much. Your turn. Well, while you're switching places, we'll all be quiet because we are commanded not to. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priests took the Ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets marched in front of the Ark of the Lord. While the trumpets were blowing, the armed troops went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the Ark of the Lord. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to their camp. They did this for six days. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. After the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets, and Joshua, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, but the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rab, the prostitute, and everyone with her in the house will live, because she hid the men he sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster on it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So the people shouted and the trumpet sounded. When they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. And we're going to actually do this again. So this is like the walls are going to come tumbling down. So let's hope the walls don't come tumbling down. But for the sake of the scripture, let's do this one more time. So Logan's going to give a big old shofar blast, and we're all going to shout. Ready, bud? Ready? Great. Excellent. Keep reading. Thank you. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword, every man and woman, both young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. Great, thank you. Pastor Matt, finish this up with the sidebar narrative. This is going to be important later. This is the sidebar narrative. Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there, and all who are with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her, they brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned up the city and everything in it. 
But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day. At that time, Joshua imposed this curse. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He'll set up its gates at the cost of his youngest. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Guys, thank you so much. Can we have a hand for our volunteers, our brave volunteers? Thanks, Barb. You can go. You guys can go ahead. Thank you so much for helping with that. Isn't that a unique Bible story? I mean, when you can imagine yourself there, imagine the priests with their trumpets. That's what we're trying to do with the shofar. Give you a little window in there. Imagine the sights and the smells in Jericho that day. It's just, just actually incredible. We've got a, a map here, and the first point I want you to see from our Bible story this morning is that our Bible story represents a real geographic location. Jericho is a real place. I've been there. You can go there. You can look at it today. And it was a real place back in Joshua's time. Also, Jericho was located west of the Jordan River, about seven and a half miles from the Dead Sea. It was approximately 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem along a major trade route. Actually, this trade route would take you from Jericho down to the territory of the Jebusites at the time who were occupying Jerusalem. Taking Jericho would have been geographically key to uncontested access to the promised land. Now this is important. Why did they have to go through Jericho? Well, Jericho was located on a that circled that yellow circled piece of property on the map that's called the Central Benjamin Plateau. And it's kind of a top-level plateaued area that all the major trade routes, north, south, east, and west, would converge right on that spot. So if you wanted to go anywhere throughout the Promised Land, and you were coming from the Jordan River, you got to go through Jericho. Jericho was a key geographic piece of land. Now, why would they have to take the trade routes? Why couldn't they just, like, go through the woods, right? Isn't there like a sneaky back way into the promised land? Well, no, you've got to understand how the hill country works. The next slide shows us the hill country is really a system of very, very high ridges and very low watersheds when it does rain there. We call these wadis. And so to get through the land, you've got to imagine, I mean, Israel's coming and they've got their carts of oxen and their, their women and children and and guys who hate walking like me, and they've got everything, and they're kind of traveling through there, right? And so you're not going to go up and down in the hill country with that load. You've got to take the trade routes. So Jericho now becomes not just some city. This becomes the key city to taking the promised land. In fact, Dr. Eugene Merrill has suggested that as the first Canaanite city encountered west of the Jordan, Jericho's fate would actually serve as a warning to all others regarding the holiness of Yahweh and His mighty work on behalf of His conquering people. It's like a beacon. You know when to pull over, right? Because you see the lights in your rear view, that beacon? This is what Jericho is. Jericho's the lights, the beacon that says, wow, this place got defeated. Something's going on here. 
And so we see that Joshua chapter 6 actually happened in a real geographic location. There's a place on planet Earth you can go to called Jericho. It was that way in 1400, and it's that way today. The next point I'd like you to understand is that the Battle of Jericho was a real historical event as well. You know, oftentimes I think when we're, you know, in our lazy boy at night and we're flipping through and we catch a documentary on, on PBS or history, and they start talking about these tales like they're myths, you know. And the Bible gets that position with all the other ancient literature, you know, just some mythological tale that they told to, to talk about God and to promote their God over the other pagan gods. Well, that's not what's going on here. This is actually a real historical event. So not only was there a place called Jericho, there was a place called Jericho that had walls. And those walls, at the sound of a trumpet, came tumbling down. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? These people who like to doubt the claims of the Bible... I find often as I research their work, these are what I call ivory tower critics. And what ivory tower criticism is, is people that are not willing to kind of get their spade in the dirt and turn it over and examine the evidence. They're too comfortable simply working with the scholarly consensus. But my interest, as well as should be your interest, is what's the actual evidence say here? Like, if we go to Jericho today, can we actually look and see if this battle of Jericho may have happened? My interest is examining the evidence, and that's what we want to do with our text. Uh, The text here in verse 1 says, Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. No one was uh, coming in or entering or leaving the city. There's some things going on here in the grammar, but really I'm going to suggest a stylistic reading as I've peered into this that kind of help us set the stage as we're getting into this story. I'm going to say that the scriptures are telling us that Jericho was tightly shut. It was closed up. It was closed to the outside world. And this was based upon the reputation that the sons of Israel had in the land. So it was closed up all because of the sons of Israel. No one could come in. And no one could go out of the city. It was tightly shut. There was no access. The Canaanites had heard about what happened in Egypt with the plagues, with God's people going free. And they had heard about this nomadic group that was wandering in the, in the wilderness for all these years, 40 years. And they had heard about that. And then from Jericho, you can actually stand on top of the tell And you can look out east, and you can actually see the Jordan River. You can see the plain. You can see what's going on. And they saw the Israelites camp there. They saw the smoke from their fires. They saw what was going on. They saw the pillar of the Lord. They didn't want any part of this. This is why the city's closed up. They're shut down. This is a natural disaster about to happen. And so it's closed up. Something's going on here, and they knew it. So they closed down for business. So Jericho's closed up. Now, the Lord goes to Joshua. He says, Joshua, my man, my man with the sword, 
You're going to go in and you're just going to take that thing, you and your boys. No, that's not what he said. He said, Joshua, I want you to walk around the city. I want you to do it quietly. I want the priests to go before you with their, with their shofars. I want you to do that for six days, and then on the, on the seventh day, I've got some special instructions. Can you imagine the faith that must have taken? Imagine the faith that must have taken for Joshua. Joshua's a warrior. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Joshua's a cold-blooded killer. I'd hate to meet that guy in an alley with a sword. I mean, he would just do me in. So think about what you do at your job. You're, of course, the best at what you do at your job. Imagine if someone said, don't do it that way, do it this really weird way, and then get all everybody else in your office to do it with you. And this must have taken incredible faith for a man like Joshua. There's a lesson, there's a faith lesson in this story for us here. Joshua is a man of faith. I'm still interested to see if we can verify these claims historically. I think that's where the Rubber meets the road, so to speak. I've got a short video I'd like you to watch as we're examining this evidence here. Please watch this video and see if we can find out more. The three teams that dug Jericho were the German team from 1907 to 1909, John Garstang in the 1930s and Kathleen Kenyon in the 1950s. Using the excavation reports from these three digs, we were able to reconstruct what the city of Jericho would have looked like in the time of Joshua. Both the stone wall and the mud brick wall on top of it made up the outer wall that surrounded the city. Further up the embankment was another mud brick wall. And so as the Israelites were marching on the outside here where we are, this is what they were looking at. This stone facing wall, this big high mud brick wall, the embankment, another mud brick wall up on top. And so uh, as they marched around, they must have been thinking, how are we going to capture this city? Because it's so strongly fortified. Referring to our ancient text, Joshua 6.20 says that on the seventh day, at the sound of the trumpets, the wall collapsed. And the Bible is very specific in how it describes that event. The Hebrew wording there is the walls takaka fell beneath themselves. And on the seventh trip around, we're told in the Bible, the mud brick wall collapsed and it fell outward and down to the base of the stone retaining wall. And when the archaeologists dug in this area, they found this pile of mud bricks all the way along the retaining wall. So where I am right now is where the pile of red bricks were found. That's correct. The Germans, Garstang and Kenyon, all found these piles of collapsed mud bricks while excavating at the base of the stone retaining wall. Then she shows that she dug down the side of that revent, yeah. the outside of that yeah. revetment wall, and then there were red, yeah. reddish, uh, collapsed bricks that yeah. she said came from the top of that yeah. stone yeah. wall. Yes, yes, yes. Which is another reason to suppose that these weren't, you know, there were walls on top. Uh -huh. They're not in situ, but the collapsed brick has come down. Yes. If you have a, wall, a brick wall sitting on top of a stone revetment and it falls over, what, where else can the bricks go? Um, they've got to go to the bottom. And so with that, with that pile of bricks, what does that 
what does that tell us? Does that tell us that there was a destruction of the well, wall? Certainly. It certainly is evidence of that destruction. These fallen bricks from the city wall can be seen in this diagram from Kenyon's excavation report. In her write-up, she makes it clear that it was not the stone retaining wall that fell, but rather the mud brick wall that once stood on top of it. And so she writes that up in her report that uh, here we have a, a collapsed city wall, and here's the evidence for it. The archaeological understanding of how the walls of Jericho fell matches well with the ancient description of the wall falling beneath itself. This find of a collapsed city wall found here at Jericho is unique in archaeology. At no other site have we found evidence for a city wall that has fallen down. Yes, there were remains of the mud brick that had fallen down. I mean, that wall came tumbling down. So the Bible says that the wall came tumbling down. The archaeologists then came and dug Jericho. And what did they find? They found a collapsed city wall. This fits perfectly with the description from the ancient text. And when you have that text, and you have the archaeology, and you can fit them together, then you have the evidence from both sides, the literary evidence and the actual uh, physical evidence from what the Bible is talking about. Now, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Bryant Wood, the archaeologist that you saw in the video, and he would absolutely slay me if I didn't make two additional points about the archaeological record at Jericho. The first one is, as they were talking about the, the, the mud brick wall falling down uh, over the stone revetment wall at the base, actually explains why verse 20 is in our text. The back half of verse 20 says, The people advanced to the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. Now, if you've got a crew walking around that big city, and they're all kind of spread out in a circular format around the city, we, we know from ancient sites that the only way into an ancient city is through the gate, through the front door. That's the only way you can get in. But imagine if these walls came tumbling down. It created a natural ramp for the warriors to kind of go in from every side and take the city. That's what's going on here um, in the archaeological record. So that's the first point he would want me to mention. The, the second point is all over the tell, all over the site, they found these storage jars filled with burnt grain. Now you got to understand, in the ancient world, grain is like gold. Um, we know from the text that this happened soon after the grain harvest, um, is what the text tells us. Now, why would there be jars filled to the top of grain? You see, in the ancient world, there was peoples, nomadic peoples, that made a business out of sacking a city and hauling away all the goods. So normally, when an archaeologist finds a city, there's nothing left. There's no gold. There's no, the only thing you have is some broken pottery. But at Jericho, I mean, we find these hundreds of storage jars filled with burnt grain. That tells us that the Israelites obeyed the Lord's command. Because what did he say? He said, the city and everything apart, verse 17 and 24, were set apart for destruction. Don't take it or you'll bring the Lord's wrath upon not only you but the Israelites as well. The evidence is there at Jericho. It's actually incredible when you use your mental faculties to think about this 
and the age of this stuff. I mean, when you're at Jericho, you can see embedded into the mud walls these storage jars just pouring out burnt grain. It's incredible. Actually, uh, Krista noted as, as she was walking up, I was watching her, and, and as her heel kind of kicked some of the ground, ashes flew up. I mean, this is a city that was destroyed in the same manner that the Bible said it was destroyed. So we see that Joshua chapter 6 is not only a story about a geographic location that's real, but it's also a story about real history. This thing actually happened. That's what I believe. Joshua chapter 6 is also a story about real people. Now, remember I said, remember the sidebar narrative of Rahab, because I think that this sidebar narrative of the story of Rahab actually shows us that the Bible is concerned about not just historical fact and some kind of doldrum historical records, but the Bible's concerned about showing you that God's concerned about real people and taking care of real people. And I think that's what the Rahab sidebar shows us. Now, I often hear people say to me, but Sean, isn't it kind of bad that God wiped out a whole people just so he could move his people in? I mean, it's kind of like you going into a neighborhood saying, I want that house and walking in and slaying all the people and moving your family in. I mean, isn't that kind of bad? I mean, why would God do something like that? I thought God was loving and merciful. Well, God is loving and merciful. But this is a fair objection. And I think as believers in the text, people who read the text, who deal with the text, because the Bible is dealing with real issues here, we need to be open to those sorts of objections. I want to give you my two best answers to why God did this. And you can kind of think a little bit more about it and tell me if I'm on track here. You know, first I think Israel was used as a tool by God to destroy the Canaanites because of their grotesque level of national sinfulness. Remember Genesis 15 and what God told Abraham? He said, you'll go into the land when the sin of the Amorites reaches its full measure, right? You remember that? Well, the Amorites in Abraham's day were the Canaanites in Joshua's day. They were the possessors of the land. And so we know that their sin had reached their full measure. It was time to go in the promised land. This was a grotesque people that was involved in all sorts of corporate sinfulness that was going on. And so this shows us that God's punishment was pre-promised and not some sort of genocide or fratricide to wipe these people out. This was divine justice that was occurring. And it's instructive for us that way. Second, because Israel is in a formal covenant relationship with God, that to disobey God was to break the covenant. Ultimately, Israel knew that obeying God and obeying His covenant promises would bring about blessings for all people. And so they had the greatest good in their mind as they're doing this. I know it's a little bit of a complex thing, but this comes up as people are watching these shows and say, well, how could a good God do that? Those are my two best answers. If you have a better one, I'd love to hear it. So we can't mistake the fact that God wiped out a people here, because He did. But you know, this might give us an opportunity to talk about Jesus and to talk about Jesus' payment on the cross for sin. 
And that by believing in Him and putting your faith and trust into Him, you can kind of get out of God's divine wrath. You don't have to experience it like the Canaanites did. I mean, imagine if there was no instruction for us to go to for God's divine wrath. There was no instructive text that we could say, look, there it is. This is helpful for us as we think through how God interacts with His people. I really believe it is. Now, Rahab shows us the humanity piece of this story. These were real people who wanted to escape God's divine and imminent judgment. Rahab actually placed her faith in God through his people. And so we see grace in the midst of all of this. We see God's grace, don't we? Can you see God's grace in this story? Listen to what Clement of Rome said in the first century. He's a first century church father. He says, Because of her faith and hospitality, Rahab the harlot was saved. For when the spies were sent to Jericho by Joshua, son of Nun, the king of the land realized that they had come to spy on their country, and he sent men out to capture them. The hospitable Rahab, however, took them in, and she hid them upstairs in a room under some stalks of flax. Then the king's men arrived, and Rahab answered them, Yes, the men who you seek came to see me, but they left immediately and are already on their way. And she pointed them in the opposite direction. And she went back and said to the Israelite men, I am absolutely convinced that the Lord your God is handing our country over to you. For fear and terror have fallen upon all the inhabitants. Therefore, when you take this land, would you save me and my father's house? See the faith that's there? The Israelites said to her, It shall be exactly as you have said. Therefore, when you learn we're coming, gather together your family under your roof, and they will be saved. In addition, they gave her a sign that she should hang from her house something scarlet. Now watch the connection Clement makes. Thus making it clear that through the blood of the Lord, redemption will come to all who hope and believe in God. Clement finishes here. He says, you see, dear friends, not only faith, but also prophecy is found in this woman. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. These are real people exercising volitional actions in an eminent danger situation. That's what's going on in this story. And that's what the Bible's talking about. The Bible is talking about a real geographic place that we can go to, sink a spade in, and investigate. The Bible's talking about a real historical event, an event that we can investigate, examine the evidence, and come to a determination that I think is pretty plain. And the Bible here is talking about real people. People that have stories. People that have fears. That have emotions wrapped up into this. And families. So you see, this is not some ivory tower, ancient text myth. The Bible's talking about real stuff. And I think that's cool. And I think that's something that we can put our faith in. And I think next weekend that's something you can call other people who show up at the, at the Good News Cruise event to put their faith in too. It should fire you up. It should reignite your passion. You know what? Leaving here you should say, I wonder what else is in here. I mean, that's the kind of book this is. It's exciting. And it's real. Now, I want to give you just three points of application that you can quickly walk away from here from how you might live Joshua chapter 6 this week. The first is, I mentioned it before, 
friends, please read your Bible. That's, that's like step one. Like get into the text and allow it to get into you. I mean, God went through a lot of work to give us this. <laughs> we could read it and discover what it says. Please, friends, read your Bible. I know Christians in my life that outside of a church setting, man, they haven't picked up their Bible in weeks or months. And you look at them, they're just like dry, parched. You know what I'm talking about? They're just like, man, I just need something. Scripture can give you that. It's fulfilling. It's encouraging. You'll be glad you read your Bible. The second point is to trust your Bible. Actually, trust what the text says. Trust it as a book that's relaying authentic information like we discovered this morning. This is an authentic text. And if you ever encounter a discrepancy, again, if you're asking that doubt question, is this really real? Did this really happen? And you get some piece of information that leads you to the no answer. I guarantee there's something wrong with the information. The Bible is a trustworthy book. It's, it's a book you can base your life upon. It's a book you can read and make decisions based upon the information that you now have. So the second point is to trust your Bible. The third point is to practice your faith. Practice your faith. Practice it like Joshua did when he obeyed God's commands in the face of something that he would have done totally differently. Practice your faith like Rahab did when she saw destruction coming upon her people, but she put her faith and trust in God through the vehicle of his people. So, so when we get to our New Testament, and so we're reading, and, and Jesus tells us to go and make disciples, let's go and make disciples. Or when you're reading the text and the Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you either to stop doing something or start doing something, practice that faith and begin to do that. Practice your faith. Well, we've seen that there really was a dude named Joshua. He really fought a battle. It was a historical battle over a piece of earth. And that those walls came tumbling down and a city was destroyed. And this was in a real geographic place that you can go to on the globe called earth named Jericho. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Trust the Word of God. 